Well, let's continue in worship as we open God's Word together. Open your Bibles with me to Luke 1. I have the joy of preaching from verses 39 through 56. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, that's on page 856. We're working our way through the book of Luke, considering what he has to tell us about the birth of the Christ. Each Sunday, a different elder is preaching that morning's passage, and as the pastor who loves Advent, uh, who sings regularly, and perhaps because my home is overwhelmingly female, I'll be preaching about Elizabeth and Mary's praise to the Lord. As we read today's text, I want you to consider, even from the beginning, the humility that these women have in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. O Lord, we ask that as we open your word today, that you would humble us, that you would bring us low, that we might be exalted in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word that reveals to us the humble birth of a humble king and his humble kingdom. Lord, we long to know Christ better. We long to be a part of his kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would make us 
effective ambassadors of that kingdom. Lord, speak to us this morning. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's estimated that about 400,000 babies are born every day. And about half of those are born right here at Crawford Avenue. Um, Though that's not actually true. We have been very blessed. Uh, And though births are commonplace throughout the world, there are two kinds of women who don't give birth regularly, the very old and virgins. Today's passage includes pregnancies of both. Throughout salvation history, the Lord shows compassion for faithful women who are unable to conceive. Most notably, we know of Abraham's wife, Sarah, but there are others. Even so, there is only one virgin birth. In the shadow of Christ's incarnation and Mary's virginal conception, Elizabeth and her pregnancy are often bypassed. With the best of intent, we may not realize that in order to get to all the Christmassy stuff, we need to go right past Elizabeth and Zechariah, go straight to Mary. Elizabeth and Mary uh, have a kind of joy that many of us may not have fully considered because we haven't fully considered their circumstances. And that's part of what I want to do today as we open God's Word. Maybe it's because the baby Jesus is so exciting, we just rush past this part to his birth. Maybe it's because anything related to Christmas in our minds needs a romantic, hallmarky glow and be covered with lights and tinsel. Before the lowly manger, before the choirs of angels and the wonder of a shepherd, we see two women waiting on the Savior. I want to show you from this text that Elizabeth and Mary are laudable and faithful examples of the humble posture we should have as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of the sermon is Humble Joy in the Advent of Christ, and it's just as a thesis statement, so to speak. It's really simple. It's just moving those words around. The advent of Christ brings joy to the humble. The advent of Christ brings joy to the humble. So what does Advent mean? We might not use it, maybe especially as Baptists. We don't like the word Advent. But the Latin word, uh, its origin simply means to come. In many ways, the Advent season is a season of waiting because we are waiting on Christ to come. Few passages in Scripture mark the sentiments of Advent so keenly as today's passage, especially because pregnancy itself is so tied up in the concept of eager, longing, and waiting for a particular day to arrive. Today we'll consider the advent of Christ and how it brings joy to the humble through three different lenses, okay? Elizabeth's humble praise, Mary's humble praise, and Christ's humble kingdom. First, let's consider Elizabeth's humble praise. Who is Elizabeth? Well, as we read in today's passage, as Jared read for us, Elizabeth is a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the patriarch of the Mosaic priesthood. Her husband, Zechariah, is a priest. It's 
Scripture tells us that both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. So we learn from Scripture, Elizabeth comes from a good family, she has a godly husband, and she is righteous and blameless before the Lord. Even though she would have been righteous and favored by any standard, including the Lord's standard, there is a kind of reproach on her. Her faithfulness did not win her children. What's more, she is now, as Scripture says, advanced in years. I think I'm going to start using that as I get older, and then two or three decades from now, maybe. I am advanced in years. Elizabeth is advanced in years. At this point, it's too late for her to have children. We often neglect how crucial it was for a couple to have children in an age before retirement plans and the 401ks and insurance and government assistance. Without healthy younger adults to take care of you, how would you make ends meet? when you get too old to work. Despite her long and godly life of serving the Lord, at this point in the narrative, Elizabeth had not yet had a child, but she had not let childlessness deter her from faithfulness to the Lord. In humility, Elizabeth trusted that the Lord would provide, even if she didn't know how. As we read earlier, an angel tells Zechariah that His wife will have a child while he's serving in the temple, but Zechariah doubts. And because he doubts, he is stricken with muteness. He can't talk. He goes home to his wife. They conceive. And then the timeline for the rest of the chapter is actually based on Elizabeth's pregnancy. We see in verse 24, for five months she kept herself hidden. Verse 26, in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God. And then at the end of our passage, it says Mary remained with her about three months and then returned home. And then it says now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. So, setting the scene, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. She's at home, minding her everyday business, and in through the door comes Mary a young girl who was part of Elizabeth's extended family. A simple greeting from Mary, who was only visited by the angels a few, angel a few days prior, sets the next few moments in motion. So as if a pregnant granny wasn't unique enough, things get even more astounding. The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps when he hears Mary's voice. The baby, by the way, we know is John the Baptist, the man who would prepare the way for the one who would be called the way. The baby, though barely cognizant, is already announcing, he's here, he's here. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. A woman who never expected to be expecting then announces through an unexpected prophetic utterance that the long-expected Messiah is near. Praise spills out in a cascade of joy and gladness. 
And I want us to notice that her reaction from start to finish is rooted in humility. It's not one of selfishness, one of doubt or pride. Her reaction is entirely joyful and humble. Let's consider that Elizabeth rejoices over Mary's blessed, blessed state. She says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Fruit of your womb means the baby inside of you. Keep in mind that it is the Spirit that has revealed Mary's pregnancy to Elizabeth. Some have argued that Mary could have told her when she came in the door. That's kind of hard to imagine how that would go. Elizabeth, it's so good to see you. I'm pregnant with the Messiah, but I'm still a virgin. Doesn't really fly, does it? That kind of greeting might get you a bless your heart, but it wouldn't get you a blessed are you among women. So like the angel who visited Mary a few days prior saying, you will be pregnant with the Messiah, a spirit-filled Elizabeth proclaims and pronounces blessing on Mary because she is now with child, the long-awaited son of David, Savior of Israel. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. A woman's greatness in this time period was often measured by the children that she bore. And of course, no greater child would be born to any woman than that of Jesus, born of Mary. Elizabeth, rightly and humbly, rejoices over Mary. But many of us might not do that if we were in Elizabeth's shoes. Have you ever worked for something for a long time or simply longed to have something and then you have it? And then it seems somebody else comes along without any effort whatsoever and has the very same thing that you worked or longed for for so long. Elizabeth could have seen herself through that lens. But Elizabeth responds humbly. She knows by the Spirit, by what was prophesied before to Zechariah, that this child would necessarily be lesser than Mary's child. Elizabeth's child would serve Mary's child, and he would be the one to say, he must increase, I must decrease. Friends, in this moment, Elizabeth has been out-honored. The Lord has honored Mary above Elizabeth. It's undeniable, and Elizabeth has not even a hint of jealousy, not a hint of bitterness or rivalry or envy at being second fiddle. This woman who waited for half a century to have a child with her faithful husband meets a young girl who isn't even married and is now pregnant with the Messiah. And what does she do? She blesses Mary. How is this possible? It's possible because Elizabeth is humble. Elizabeth's joy doesn't come from comparing her blessings to somebody else's blessings. Elizabeth's joy comes from humility before the Lord, knowing that every good gift the Father has given her is undeserved. And when you realize that every blessing you have in this life comes from the Father of lights with whom there is not even a shifting shadow due to change, your gratitude and your joy and your satisfaction go through the roof. Elizabeth's satisfaction was not found in childbearing, in notoriety, in position. Elizabeth's satisfaction was found in God's glory. And by the power of the Spirit, she knew 
the Messiah had come. And in light of that glorious news, all else pales in comparison. Her song begins and ends with pronouncing blessing on Mary. It ends by saying, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. There's a part of me that hopes that Zechariah is not in the room, or maybe the next room when she says this, (laughs) because she is basically saying, you believed what the angel told you. Zechariah did not. (laughs) Now, consider this. Her relative, her friend, has been faithful to the Lord, and she praises God for her faithfulness to the Lord. She's not focused on herself. She is focused on the glory of God. Her joy comes not from the blessings of God to herself necessarily or finally. Her joy comes from knowing that God is glorified. God is getting glory through Mary, so Elizabeth decides to join the party and give God glory as well. Friends, maybe you've been waiting for the Lord to acknowledge you for long years of faithfulness, to reward you for it. You've had a long life of serving Him, but you haven't seen the rewards that you hoped for. You see others being blessed, being honored in the ways that you would like to be blessed. Let me ask you, does your heart feel better when considering those things? Are you letting jealousy creep in? Or do you praise God for faithful friends? Are you able to encourage and bless those whom the Lord has blessed and honored, even if it's above you? If your goal in life is to get glory for yourself, that will be a difficult pill to swallow. If, however, you humble yourself before the Lord, the blessings you experience from Him will rightly be understood as undeserved and you will want the Lord to increase while you decrease. Elizabeth also rejoices over her own blessed state. She says, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why, why would the Lord be so kind as to let the mother of my Lord come into my living room? She counts herself unworthy of Mary's presence, not because Mary herself is praiseworthy, but because Mary carries the promised son of David in her womb. Along with other godly people introduced to us by Luke in the first two chapters, like Simeon and Anna, Elizabeth had been waiting for the Messiah to come. There is more to her life, more to the longings of her heart. She longs for the Messiah, and now He's here in the womb of Mary. You know, for centuries, the people of God had been waiting for God to speak to them once again, but God had been remaining silent. It's about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There were no more prophetic utterances. God spoke through His prophet Micah about this, saying, "'The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them.'" The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. 
They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Centuries without an answer from God, and now the Messiah is here. Next, Elizabeth rejoices in the Lord's coming. This is ultimately where all of her joy comes from. After calling Mary the mother of my Lord, Elizabeth says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Well, that could be just a coincidence, right? Such circumstances don't merit such a reaction, right? Any pregnant woman will tell you a kick to the bladder doesn't mean messianic proximity. Elizabeth isn't interpreting omens here. She's receiving revelation from the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth is prophesying. The Lord is here. And along with John the Baptist, who we learned from today's scripture reading, would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, they attest together the Christ has come. And friends, if you've ever wondered if a baby in the womb becomes a person sometime after conception, notice from Scripture that a child six months in utero is recognizing a child less than a week in development as Lord. Not as potential Lord, but as the Lord. It's also fitting for us to note that Elizabeth is the first human being to call Jesus Lord in his incarnated state. Mary doesn't even have a baby bump, and Elizabeth is able to acknowledge that the Lord is here. Elizabeth's outpouring of praise is a result of her humility before the Lord. Her joy, her excitement, they are rooted in a desire to see God glorified above all else. So now that we've considered Elizabeth's humble praise, let's turn now to consider Mary's humble praise. Last week, Pastor Jesse preached from Luke 26, 38. You can flip back there if you'd like. But the, the angel announces to Mary the following. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The passage tells us that Mary is confused, so the angel explains how it will happen, and he tells her to go see old Auntie Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant. We read, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And Mary does so immediately. Straight away, she goes to see Elizabeth. And we know that this is the case that she wastes no time because in verse 39 it says, In those days she arose and went with haste into the hill country. We can also do some baby math, right? Elizabeth, six months pregnant, Mary stays three months, and then John is born, okay? So having just heard the news from the angel, being told to behold Elizabeth, she goes. Now, it would have taken Mary about three days to get from Nazareth to the hill country where Zechariah and Elizabeth live. And if you've ever had 
a big event happen, even a big discussion happen, you think about those things in the days that follow, right? Three days of considering what had just happened to her in her home. Three days of realizing all the challenges that would lie before her with an unexpected pregnancy. Three days of traveling, praying, meditating on Scripture, and wondering, how is this all going to turn out? If you were in Mary's situation, what passages of Scripture would come to your mind? What would you think about after hearing that you were pregnant with a child whose life would be wholly dedicated to the Lord, that you would have to surrender him to the plans of God, and that your older relative, who is barren, is also having a child who would serve the living God. Mary's mind goes to the prayer of Hannah. Hannah is the mother of Samuel. Hannah was barren until she gave birth to Samuel, whom she dedicated to the Lord for his entire life. So when Mary arrives, she's been meditating, thinking about Scripture, and she arrives with a song. Sometimes it's called the Magnificat after the Latin version of the first line. We call it a song because it's formed and orderly like a song using elements of Hebrew poetry. Elizabeth's praise just kind of spills out in excitement. But Mary's, however, is well thought out and organized. Now, we don't know if it had a melody, but we do know this. It is absolutely saturated with Bible, especially with the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. We also see there's no indication that she's been filled with the Spirit like Elizabeth has. So it's not as though she is speaking by the Spirit in this sense. She has come prepared. She's been meditating on the Word. I have a few slides I'm going to put up because I want us to compare the things that Hannah prays and the things that are included in Mary's song. So we'll have Hannah and Mary for H and M, okay? In 1 Samuel 2, we read, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hannah's prayer says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Mary says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Hannah says, The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Mary says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Hannah says, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary also pulls from other parts of Scripture what she knows from what she has heard in the synagogue. From Exodus 32, 13, we read, this is Moses speaking. Moses says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, 
to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring. Remember your servant. Remember your offspring. Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then I've reversed these because I want you to see this. Mary says at the, in, her song, in her song, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Why has he looked on the humble estate of his servant? We read in Isaiah 66, 22, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and what else? And trembles at my word. Friends, Mary did not travel with a Bible or a Bible app. Mary did not travel with scrolls in hand. Mary knows the Bible. Mary has sections of the Bible memorized. She knows them. And as she goes along, she's meditating on Scripture, and she's going to it for comfort. She's going to it for consolation. She's hiding God's Word in her heart. It informs her understanding of reality and helps her along life's path. At some point, Mary had heard about Hannah's prayer when God's Word was read at the synagogue. And it's most likely that Mary grew up being exposed to the Bible regularly. Mary is not some dewy-eyed dolt or a country bumpkin who has never heard of God. This is a woman favored by the Lord because she is a woman who is humble before the Lord and His Word. Mary's song has three sections. The first section focuses on praise for God's work for Mary. She opens her song by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Like Elizabeth, Mary did not consider herself worthy of the honor she had been given. She will be the one to carry the promised Savior. Her heart and her mind aren't focused on herself but on God's glory. I do think it's safe to say, however, that Mary's song is not just a song of praise to the Lord that she utters without any kind of emotion behind it. Like the songs we sing every Sunday, she's making statements about who the Lord is for her own comfort. Why do we sing our theology on Sundays? Why do we make statements about who the Lord is and what He has done? We do so to give glory to God and to encourage the saints, to encourage our own hearts as we sing. We need to be encouraged with the truth of God. And that's what Mary is doing with her song. Mary knows that the road ahead will not be easy. She's not, she's not uh, unwitting or stupid in any way. She knows, I'm a young, unwed mother with an unexpected pregnancy. She knows, personally, she's never done wrong. She hasn't wronged anyone else. But in fact, she knows that the pregnancy that she has is a sign that she's honored by the Lord. But how will the rest of the town see her? 
How does she explain a supernatural pregnancy to her family or to her fiancé, Joseph? We don't know how or when Joseph heard the news, but Matthew tells us in his gospel that when Mary was found to be with child, it says, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. At this point in the story, here in Luke, Mary does not yet know that God will reveal the truth to Joseph in dreams and that he will, in fact, marry her and become Christ's adoptive father. She doesn't know that that's going to happen yet. Surely, she must have been tempted to be anxious, to fear. Like us, she is comforted by singing of God's sovereignty and provision. Have you noticed that in addition to humility, that's one of the main themes of this song? God provides for those who trust in him. It's not riches that provide for you, it's God. Mary's writing the song to comfort herself, right? To say the truth about who God is. It's not riches that will provide for you, Mary, it's God. It's not powerful positions of authority on this world that will provide for you. It's God. It's not might. It's not money. It's not thrones that are trustworthy. It's God. And on whom does the Lord extend this mercy? His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He exalts those of humble estate. The second section of Mary's song concerns praise for God's acts to all. As you can see, Mary not only speaks of God's kindness towards her, but to all people who fear him. And this, even this phrasing would have been a great consolation and hope to those Gentiles who were called God-fearers. Who does the Lord have mercy on? On those who fear God. No matter the generation, no matter the nationality, God's mercy falls upon those who humble themselves before him. And that's news worth rejoicing over and worth singing about. God is opposed to the proud, we read in James and in 1 Peter, but he gives grace to the humble. And as Revelation unfolds, we see that it's not just the humble of Israel who will be exalted, but the humble of the nations who call on the name of Christ. The final section of Mary's song concerns praise for God's acts to his people, Israel. Mary began her song by calling herself God's servant. She ends the song by drawing attention back to her own people, God's servant, Israel. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, it says. Now, remember, Mary is part of the Davidic line, right? King David is her ancestor, and the genealogy for that line is neatly provided for us in the beginning of Matthew's gospel in chapter 1. Mary knows the prophecies. Mary knows that the coming king ultimately is not a gift given to her only, but the Lord is fulfilling his promises to a people, the nation of Israel. And she takes joy in knowing that this good news is not just about her. It's about God for the glory of his name. It's about the Lord saving Israel and ultimately a redeemed people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and language.
God has been revealing his kindness, his mercy, his long-suffering patience, his justice, his wrath, his trustworthiness to the nation of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now, through the birth of Christ, he is fulfilling his promises in mysterious and glorious ways. And Mary is full of praise for God. Christian, let me ask you, what is your source of joy? Is your joy in Christ? Is it centered on him? Or is it elsewhere? Is Christ an addition to your joy? Are you willing to lay down your life for God's glory like Mary did? I can assure you that Mary had a different five-year plan in mind before all this happened. Consider the humble joy of Mary. Follow her pattern by finding joy, humbly serving the Lord, no matter where his plans take you. Finally, let's consider Christ's humble kingdom. Luke's gospel as a whole has an ongoing theme in it that is sometimes called the upside-down kingdom. In human terms, Christ's kingdom is a kingdom that doesn't make any earthly sense. The meek inherit the earth. The poor in spirit are blessed. Those who consider themselves righteous are rebuked. And prostitutes are praised for their repentance. Tax collectors get a seat at the rabbi's table. And earthly throne rooms aren't scheduled as a venue on Christ's teaching tour. Just one chapter into this gospel, and we've already seen a faithful seasoned priest rebuked by an angel and a young woman of no notoriety encouraged by that same angel. We've also seen in Elizabeth the barren made fruitful and the humble exalted. Listen again to Mary's words, starting with 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What's interesting here is that Mary's words, Mary's verb choice, if you will, she's speaking with a sense of completion. These things have been done. If we're going to get a little bit nerdy here, but I promise it's going to help us, okay? The Greek verb tense here is called the aorist tense. It's often used to describe the past, but this usage of the tense is describing the future. Sometimes it's called prophetic aorist tense. Now, I'm not telling you that just so we can nerd out together, so you can boast to your friends later about knowing what the aorist tense is. It's to help us understand what's happening. You could say that this is a past tense about the future. Well, what sense does that make? It's so sure that this will happen in the future that it's spoken of in a conclusive, finished, past tense. All of these things are so sure to happen, you can consider them done. 
Have all the rich been sent away empty today? No. Have all the pious poor been exalted? No, not yet. But in Christ's unfolding kingdom, these things are true and will ultimately be fulfilled on that final day. Christ's kingdom is coming, and nothing can stop it, which is why we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. God is in control. How can this be said with such definitiveness? It's because God is sovereign. He is sovereign over our days. He is sovereign over history. He has spoken from from the history's past to predict that the Messiah would come, and now he is here. He has worked and orchestrated all things for this to happen. Christ proclaimed this simply by being born. I love the line, the silent word is pleading. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever stopped to consider that Christ is the only human ever born who had the privilege of deciding exactly how it would happen. No one else gets that privilege. Christ does, and he chooses the circumstances that so many of us are familiar with. We don't need to feel sorry for Jesus in his humble birth, but we must take notice. What is the Lord telling us by being born this way? Jesus doesn't need riches to ensure his plans will come to pass. Jesus doesn't need powerful people of influence to grease the wheels for him. Jesus doesn't need powerful or mighty warriors to protect him or servants to wait on him. He doesn't need a medical team or even a doula to ensure that he is born healthy. He doesn't even need to be an adult. Christ, the child, was born in a humble manger under the sovereignty of God. Jesus, as a baby, has God the Father, and that's all he needs. And in his humble kingdom, that's all we really need too. Might we suffer harm? Might we go hungry? Yes, for even Christ experienced hunger and thirst. Christ suffered harm. But even though death may take us, it will not have the final word. The mighty, the proud, the powerful, those who are rich in earthly possessions but are not rich in humility will all be scattered and flung into the fiery torment of hell. Not one man will be saved by his debit card on that day. Not one man will receive mercy because of his prestige. Who is God's mercy for? His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Why is it then that we strive for riches, for prestige, more than for humility? Why do we make plans for our futures that aren't centered on Christ and his glory? Why fear any man's rebuke? No matter what kind of power that person has in your family, in your workplace, in your city, why fear any man's rebuke? Instead, let us be humble before the Lord, like Elizabeth, and count all blessings as undeserved. Let us be humble like Mary, who treasured God's word and trusted God with her future. 
Let us be humble like Christ our Savior, who chose a humble birth and a humble life and gave God the most glory nonetheless. May we be a people of joy who rest in knowing that it is God and God alone who fills the hungry with good things, who shows strength with his arm, who brings the mighty down from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. Friends, the advent of Christ brings joy to the humble. Humble yourself before God then and join with the host of angels who announce the birth of Christ and give glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this account of two faithful followers who waited on your arrival and even so did so with humility and joy. As we celebrate this season of Advent and of Christmas, help us, Lord, to be a people who overflow with joy because we have been humbled by you before Jesus. Help us, Lord, to realize that it is not riches or power or might that will save us, that it is in Christ in Christ alone that we find salvation. And if we simply humble ourselves before him, confess him as Lord and Savior, and turn from a life of sinful selfishness toward him, that we will find mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your humility, for your kindness, for your provision, and for your salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.